Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Dr. Sturette is a movement and mobility coach for players in the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA, plus a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly has created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach. Every day, Virtual Mobility Coach gives you guided mobility videos. It walks you step-by-step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve range of motion, and improve performance. Try it completely free for two weeks, and if you decide to continue, you can get 10% off for life using the promo code PROJECT10. Hurry up, because the code expires October 1st. And welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. We are now reaching just over 50 episodes, and this is something I'm extremely proud of because when I originally sat down to make this podcast, I said, how can I reach more people and can I get to 50 episodes within my first couple years? Well, we're about five months in, we've already surpassed that many episodes. We've had on some phenomenal guests. What has happened for some people when they, they try to do new goals is they, they fall off. They might get so, so far and then eventually they fall back into old habits. I can say we've surpassed the goal we've aimed for so far. And today our guest is someone who has done the same thing. Today I am sitting down with Jonathan McLaren and Jonathan is a nutrition coach. Jonathan has come from a position of weight gain and then turned his entire body around losing over 100 pounds, right? Absolutely, yeah over a hundred pounds and he's kept it off with his part. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've never lost a hundred so i can't tell you but in in the industry we see a lot of times when people lose the weight their ability to keep it off doesn't always happen so i'm super excited to have you on the show today to talk about your story and your very diverse background because you're not you're not just a weight loss guy. <laughs> you've worked in, in the industry um, with your supplements, and you're going to talk a little bit about that, as well as your, your science background. I'm very interested to hear how that played a role. But yeah, you've lost 100. Now you're on the show. Where, where, awesome. where, do, we, where do we start? Well, first of all, thank you for, for having me, man. It's, it's awesome to, to be able to have a conversation with someone like yourself. And so um, usually the first question I get is like, well, how did you lose 100 pounds? And uh, I like to answer with great difficulty, truthfully, because um, weight loss, the way it's been marketed to us is that it should be fast and easy. And the truth is to do it and to do it permanently is difficult. And so it took many tries. And I share that because if anybody, any of your listeners are on their own weight loss journey and feeling discouraged because it's taken maybe more than one try or they, they lost weight and regained it, I've lost and regained weight a number of times um, and because, and partly it was just because um, I think I was using methods that, that didn't work for creating permanent weight loss. Mm-hmm. I, I was stuck in the idea that I just have to create this temporary change to, to lose the weight. And once I've lost the weight, um, then I can just go back to enjoying my life again. And ultimately that's, um, that's going to lead to failure. So, Yes, very true. Um, you said about some of the methods you've used before. I'm going to assume that you've tried some 
possibly some extreme methods. And I, <laughs> not, and I don't mean like you just stopped eating forever, but you right, probably yeah. took some, some drastic changes, mm-hmm. you know, compared to someone uh, who's not trying to lose weight. I did. Yeah. So, um, it, it, it kind of started with um, Bill Phillips' Body for Life uh, back in the day, which mm. I think, you know, it's actually a pretty solid program. I think it's it stood the test of time pretty well, um, but it, it involved like working out six times a day and I think, or sorry, six, eating six times a day and working out six times a week. And I found that obviously too challenging to, to maintain. Um, then I got into um, kind of Craig Ballantyne and his turbulence training back in the day. Um, Greg Valentine? Uh, uh, Craig Valentine. I thought you said... I heard Greg and I was thinking the WWF wrestler. Oh, Greg, Greg the Hammer Valentine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, he didn't look really small. I don't think he lost any weight. <laughs> He's a big dude. Yeah. yeah, I saw him live in Vancouver back in 1989. That's dating me a little bit, but... Um, Wild. Yeah, so then I got into that in kettlebell training um, from mm. Pavel. Uh, Pavel, I'm not sure if you're listening to, to Pavel. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I got, I got into kind of doing that. Um but uh, along the way, like I realized that the, the fitness part of it was really, really important, but I wasn't paying as close attention to nutrition. And uh, so it wasn't really getting me to where I want to go. Um, but part of the reason why I ended up gaining the weight is, is because I went through trauma about 10 years ago. It's, it's almost, we're almost at the 10 year anniversary of it. And mm-hmm. I really wasn't equipped to, to deal with the fallout of it. Um, so when you go through like an emotionally traumatizing experience, um, a lot of people will turn to things like drugs and alcohol. And for me, I turned to food. So food was my source of, of comfort, my source of escape. And, and breaking free from that. And uh, so ultimately that's what saw my weight gain really spike, you know, cause mm-hmm. I'd got up to about, I think 240, 250 pounds. And uh, I thought, oh man, I've really hit like rock bottom here in my late twenties. But like when I went through the trauma, like I, my weight just spiked up. And then I kind of spent a number of years trying to figure out how do I get back from this? I can say that uh, working in fitness, the conversation is never front when I work yeah. with someone, when I start with someone and they say I need to lose a whole bunch of weight and they may be a lot overweight and it's always, oh, I just want to be healthier. But a lot of times yeah. there's a situation that, that started something. And, and as a yeah. fitness, as a trainer, <laughs> sometimes those are very hard conversations to have with people. But you're 100% right. I've heard, I've heard it many times before. Yeah, it's, um, there was an article written a couple of years back and I think it was like, I'm a trainer, not a therapist, or I'm a coach, not a therapist. Um, and that's true. But the reality is in, in the world of, of sort of body transformation, you're going to encounter um, the reasons that people um, have, have gained the weight is not because they're dumb. It's not because they don't know. Um, it's because mm-hmm. there's a gap. It's because very often there's a coping mechanism involved. I said there's a gap between what we know and what we do. So I'm very, very interested in behavioral psychology. And and I focus on, in, in my own coaching, I focus on what we call brain-driven weight loss. So mm-hmm. that's really um, that's really about understanding what, what is driving the behaviors. Where do the, where do the behaviors come from? Because I think people understand that if you want to be healthy, your diet's going to largely comprise of vegetables, lean protein, um, quality carbohydrates, healthy fats, that kind of thing. That part of it's not really a mystery, but it's like, well, why don't we follow that? <laughs> What's stopping mm-hmm. us? And trying to understand that. And your background is quite diverse in your education. I mean, I was going through your profile there. I mean, uh, was it you were a Marine at one point, a chemist at one point, behavioral psychology? Why don't you, what's the list? Just so people get well, a background of what you do or what you've uh, done. Yeah. So I, I originally was studying um, marketing psychology and chemistry at University of Victoria. Kind of a weird pairing. And uh, it, it was kind of like it just became an interest-based thing because I was originally a music student. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, but I decided there wasn't really any money in being a music teacher. So then I thought I'd get into like the sciences or stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, so I got into nanotechnology research, um, 
but ultimately I didn't, I had opted out of my PhD program and joined the Navy, uh, the Canadian Navy. So I became a Marine engineer. I wasn't, I wasn't a Marine, but I was a Marine engineer. And, and if you're listening to this, just the, the audio, you can't see. Okay. But John's background right now is he's at the beach. I don't, I didn't tell him to disclose <laughs> where he actually is, but it looks like he's at the beach right now. Uh, yes. Waves rolling in on a palm tree in the background, a nice gentle tropical breeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but then we, after, so I was in the Navy for about six years, I've spent three years in, I took a one year uh, leave of absence, went and lived in Australia, um, got married to my wife, who's an Australian, uh, came back for three more years, and then we packed up our lives and um, decided to travel around the world. So we just hopped on a plane to Mexico and uh, said, here we go, without really a plan. <laughs> and it being a three-year kind of globetrotting adventure. So, um, But it was it was on that um, trip when I was living down in South Africa that um, I, I was attacked. And uh, four gentlemen tried to, to beat me to death. And uh, wrong place, wrong time, wrong, wrong skin color, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, sort of the emotional follow-up from that was what, what led to like the, the dramatic weight gain, sort of trying to find my way back to myself again. Hmm. What's very, um, it's kind of, no worry to say it, it's sad to hear that that happened. And yeah. I'm sorry, sorry you went through that, but how, what, what happened afterwards? Like how, how quickly did you gain the weight with something so traumatic like that occurring? Um, it was probably between, so it happened in August, um, so August of 2011. And I think by about December, I was well over 300 pounds and wow. yeah, so it happened over a, a few months, but uh, quite mm-hmm. rapidly. And, uh, the thing with our biology is I say we have a, a famine biology and a feast world. And when you pair like trauma, um, uh, high, super high stress levels, um, high cortisol levels, um, emotional distress, eating a lot of comfort foods that are just like literally engineered to, um, you can eat a lot of calories in a single day. It can happen extremely rapidly. And, uh, I remember we, we left South Africa after a few months, um, in, in the December, um, December after the incident happened. Um, and I just got to Australia and I looked at myself and I was like, who, who am I? <laughs> like, and how did I get here? Mm-hmm. So I think for, for a period of a few months, really it was, it was PTSD, um, it was just kind of shock and going into survival mode and a lot of things were just happening on autopilot um, just just to kind of cope because I wasn't I wasn't equipped for it. N- nothing really prepares you to go through difficult experiences. Now to be fair, I'll say I'm grateful for that experience now. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But uh, one, because I survived, but two, because um, it caused me to go through this period of growth. Um, I'd say prior to that, um, I wasn't really necessarily a compassionate person towards people who struggle with their weight. Um, I just mm-hmm. figured it was that they were lazy. And uh, after going through that experience, um, it, it opened my eyes to a whole new possibility that, okay, um, very often when we see people who are struggling with their weight, um, there, there's a backstory there that we don't see. And, and as a nutrition coach, um, the stories that I hear as well, they can be really, really um, heartbreaking to hear. Um, but the one thing that, you know, I think you and I remember is that we're not there to fix people's past. We're there to help them create a better future. And, and uh, so I try, I try to listen. I try to honor people's past. I hear their stories. I can be present with them in it. But um, ultimately, it's about um, that helps us to understand our present behaviors. But we're really about helping people create a, a better future. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think what you're saying is it- and people have been in your shoes before in different variations uh, are aware that there's a trauma effect and there's going to be some way to cope with it. So why don't you yeah. walk us through a little bit of the psychology behind that and, and, and why do people do that if they know better, but they're still, you know, maybe over consuming? Why, why is that? Right. Happening? 
Um, it's kind of because it, it, it comes from two different parts of the brain. And so uh, the thing that makes us human is, is what's known as our prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobes. That's the part of our brain near our, our forehead. You won't see mm -hmm. me tapping it. But um, uh, so that really is the front of our mind. That's where a lot of the logical processing happens. Um, and it, it uh, our brain demands a lot of energy. Up to 25% of our calorie burn in a day is our brain. And yet it only makes up 2% of our body mass. So it's it's... It's a huge energy hungry organ. Now, in order to be efficient, um, our biology is such that we can, we can sort of bypass that. We have a more primal animal type brain and it's more driven by emotion. It's not really connected to logic and the two normally work together. But when you go through um, um, something like trauma, there's kind of a disconnect between the two. And so I would remember thinking like, this doesn't make sense to be doing this, but I felt a compulsion to do it. I couldn't stop it. Um, and so what I would say is, is like, we have a part of our brain, our nervous system, sorry, that's hardwired to seek comfort and to avoid discomfort and pain. And that's the very primal part of our brain. And then we have this part of us, the essence of who we are as a human, who's wired to look for growth and development and wanting to better ourselves. And there's, there's this dynamic tension, but the primal brain is kind of more like uh, an old fashioned cathode ray tube. Um, and the, the sort of the thinky brain, the prefrontal cortex is like a supercomputer. I mean, they both are in one sense, but one's like a very basic um, uh, function. And it mm -hmm. can, so the more tired we become, the more the more we just make decisions in autopilot or based on snap emotions versus logical reasoning. Like, let me consider the long-term consequences of this behavior. Mm -hmm. and, and when that happens, when people feel, feel that they have no willpower left and then they're falling down that route, is there certain foods that the brain's like, Psst, hey, go get this one here over something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's, uh, it's always going to be, well, let's say it's never going to be broccoli. Um, broccoli is not a, a hyper palatable, what we call a high bliss food. So you eat broccoli and there's very little dopamine response in the brain. We mm -hmm. might feel good or virtuous about eating it because we're nourishing ourselves by eating something nutrient dense like broccoli. But ultimately it's, it's, um, it's going to be junk food. It's going to be something that has lots of, lots of sugar, lots of fat, lots of salt, or some kind of pairing of those three. Um, that's what it is that we crave because um, we've learned that those foods create that dopamine response, that pleasure response in the brain. And so maybe I could kind of just explain, if you picture like a, a three-blade propeller and each blade kind of represents a loop, um, maybe it would go something like this. Your brain goes, um, I'm uncomfortable and I'm feeling stressed out. So then you go and you eat maybe some chocolate and your brain goes, whoa, that felt good. And so your brain just learned a new skill. You do that a couple of times and now you've kind of developed a habit. So your brain has learned that when I'm stressed, I eat chocolate, I get relief. Now the side effect of that sort of pattern of eating is obviously you start to gain weight because you start to seek out high bliss, um, high calorie dense foods. So then you realize, okay, something's wrong here. Um, the side effect of me using food to you know, deal with my stress is I'm gaining weight. So then we would go, okay, um, I'm using chocolate as my example. Uh, so chocolate's a problem. I have to cut out chocolate. I'm, I'm, I'm swearing off chocolate because that's why I'm gaining all this weight. Mm -hmm. Well, then your brain goes, well, hang on a sec. Chocolate was a solution to a problem. It wasn't a great solution, but it was a great short-term solution. So that's what creates cravings um, because you haven't dealt with the reason why you're eating the chocolate. So your brain goes, um, I want chocolate and I want it now. And eventually you can't willpower your way out of this your brain will ratchet up the pressure uh, hormonally and emotionally until eventually you break and you eat chocolate and boom at last you finally got relief but now you're back to that first loop you know i feel stressed i eat chocolate i get relief so now there's kind of a third piece to the puzzle 
And that is that we, we then create a story to try to explain our behaviors. We create like a narrative. So it would go something like this. Um, I'm a chocoholic. Mm-hmm. I can't control myself around chocolate. So that's the story that we use to explain our behavior. Now, why we might say like, oh, I'm addicted to chocolate is we say, um, it, it gives us a little bit of an out. I'm, I'm in the grips of something that's outside of my control. I can't stop my behavior. Now, the way that our brain works is now we're gonna try and prove that story true. So every time you see chocolate, your brain is like, you're a chocoholic. What does a chocoholic do? <laughs> and they eat chocolate. And we start to live that story out on repeat. And obviously that's a bit of a simplification, but it's kind of like there's the habit piece, there's the cravings piece, and then there's the like the stories and the beliefs piece that, that drive the behavior and, and all roads lead back to chocolate in this example. So if people identified themselves as a fat burnaholic, <laughs> Psycholo- psychologically could you then convert someone to be like oh i'm just gonna look for fat burning and then the body starts producing more dopamine is that a possibility <laughs> i don't know about dopamine but you 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 could probably get a little bit of like norepinephrine going or something to to get more um fat burning happening mm-hmm. um so you but the thing is if you start to identify as a fat burnaholic um which i think there is a term for like someone who's addicted to exercise for example who's addicted to cardio that's a, mm-hmm. that's a real thing um mm-hmm. you would then start to act out that identity so something like like i'm a whatever holic whether it's a carboholic a chocoholic uh, whatever um, you start to act out that identity so that's like an identity descriptor eventually and so we start to our brain likes to keep our reality stable if i can put it that way and so if we have a, if we hold a belief that this is who i am then our brain will drive us to act on behaviors that will confirm that to be true. And so the process of creating permanent change is really, really challenging. Here's why. We actually have to change who we are. We have to, we have to create an identity shift. And so very often I say to people, look, you need to understand that if you want this to be permanent, that weight loss is a doorway. It's not a destination. Meaning that once you get there, you now have a choice. Do you step into that doorway and adopt this new identity permanently? Or do you go back to your old um, patterns of behavior? And this is why we see things like self-sabotage starting to occur is because our brain kind of panics and goes, "Uh oh, I'm not ready to leave this old person behind. And so I remember I wrote, uh, and I actually published it one time on my social media profile. I could probably dig it up somewhere. A dear old Jonathan post. (laughs) And it was really about letting go of a past identity. So I'd been nicknamed the Garburator back in the day. Um, I was always known for my big appetite. Um, I, uh, I I always ate like people's leftovers if it was, you know, quality food. Oh, I would say if it's going to waste, it might as well go to my waste and things like that. So I had this identity even, and then I morphed into after my weight gain, the jolly fat guy and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I had, the, you know, there's, I, I had to leave behind some good parts. There's actually, believe it or not, some good parts about being over 300 pounds, like being morbidly obese. One okay. is you can kind of eat in a very undisciplined fashion. Mm-hmm. It's more um, accepted. Right. I can just eat whatever I want. And everybody, like eating is very pleasurable. We enjoy eating. Mm-hmm. Um, any, I, I say anyone who says food is just fuel. It's not true. Like food is history. It's culture. It's social. It's connection. It's family. Mm-hmm. There's so many other elements to food. And so, um, yeah, when I'm the jolly fat guy and I'm like, hey, let's everybody eat cake because I want to eat cake, you know. Um, everyone's like, yeah, eating cake feels great. Well, you know, except for that one person's like, no, thanks. I'm going to watch my weight. <laughs> and, uh, right. But that was who I'd become. Mm-hmm. And, or, or, you know, and then I'd get served maybe a dessert at a meal someone made and then I'll eat the entire dessert like super rapidly. And they're like, oh, hey, you know, I wouldn't want you to be hungry. Why don't you have another serving? Oh yeah, of course I would. And so on. Right. So it became this, 
this identity. Like I was the guy with the huge appetite who ate a whole bunch of servings and things like that. Hmm. And so, um, now the question would be then, how, how do we, we create change? And I think the, the, the one thing we need to do here is we need to bring our unconscious and sort of automatic behaviors back into our conscious awareness. That's one of the first steps. Because I think if you're listening, you think, well, you know, I feel stuck in this cycle of behavior and I don't know how to change it. Well, a lot of our behaviors are habitual, so habits, and they're driven at the subconscious level. You know, think about if you've ever driven from like one place to another that you've driven many times over and you're like, I totally don't even remember like driving there. Like, how did I get here safely? That's like, oh, that was your midbrain just doing it on autopilot because you've done it so many times. Mm-hmm. And so when people say like, man, I'm like, I'm like eating everything right and uh, I can't seem to be losing weight. I'm like, there's not a flaw in like the law of thermodynamics in physics. Mm-hmm. What's happening is there's unconscious eating behaviors taking place that aren't being recognized consciously. And so, for example, if I work with someone in a nutrition, nutrition coaching realm, I'll ask them to take photos of their meals. And that sounds like a really simple request because um, I'm not asking them to count calories at this point. I'm not asking for macros or weighing their foods or things like that. We want to keep it really, really simple. That simple act, one, it's a, it's a permanent record that you can't erase. Um, two, it, it brings, whenever you go to eat, it brings it to your conscious awareness. It's no longer a habitual or an unconscious behavior. Mm-hmm. And so now we have a historical record. It's not to judge people, but it's to say, well, let's have a look at what you're eating. And because I work online exclusively, I'm not in people's kitchens or dining rooms or things like that. So I'm like, I kind of need to see your meals through your eyes. That'll give me an idea of, of what's going on there. But the third part of it is, um, if you don't want to take a photo, you're like, I want to pretend this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, now we've found something. So I'm very big on, on compassion. Now, compassion is not a get out of jail free card, but it's like, let's understand the human struggle. And so if you come and work with me, um, I'm not going to judge you for your negative behaviors, but we are going to examine them. But I say, I call it wrestling with our demons in the light. So I'm going to create the space where you can come to me and say like, you know, I face planted and ate an entire pizza. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know what happened. It's like, cool. Let's figure it out. I'm not going to call you a fat, lazy pig with no willpower. I'm going to say this behavior happened for a reason. I bet we can figure out why. And if we understand that, because both people would know, hey, eating an entire pizza, like I used to do that, um, isn't helpful for your long-term health. So let's figure out why you're doing that. And if we understand that, now we can start to create change. So that's the whole awareness is the first step to change. I think the way you just said there about measuring it, it it can be managed. And then also bringing to light, or as you say, to the conscious awareness, all of a sudden it can't be ignored. And then you, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you meet someone where they are and then you give them an education about why it happened and they feel very safe having those conversations with you, yes? Yeah, it's and it's really, really important in the coaching sphere, I think, to create that space Um, and and to be... To create a contrast, I wasn't like that when I first started coaching. I was very um, discompassionate. Um, I was like, you just got to get your butt in gear, you know, crack the whip, drill sergeant, that kind of thing. Like stop being so lazy and all this kind of stuff. But it really, it showed my lack of, that was using the tools I had at that point. Um, But it showed my lack of understanding what really drives human behavior. And, And again, to be clear, it's not like, oh, you've had a hard day. You might as well just polish off that bottle of wine. That's not compassion. That's enabling. And that's, that's not helpful. But it's like, let's figure out why it is. So to deal with something like um, cravings, for example, the, the compulsion to, to eat, it feels like when it happens in the brain, it feels like if I don't answer the call, so to speak, if I don't, if I don't answer this craving, 
it's going to ramp up to infinity and my head's going to explode. <laughs> like it's going to like my life will get so miserable. That's so that's what we call a cognitive distortion. So that's where we create a massive story. That's very, very disproportionate to the reality. Mm-hmm. Like we'll say things like I'm starving. I haven't eaten in like three hours. And I'm like, the starvation response doesn't kick into at least 72 hours without a single calorie. <laughs> like you're you, pretty, you, you'll be okay. <laughs> you'll, you'll be okay. But yeah. what are it? So when we create this alarmist language, so I very often call people out of their language. If we create this alarmist language around eating and starving is the most common one that I call people out on. I'm like, you're not starving. You might, you're experiencing hunger, but you're not starving mm-hmm. um, because I'm starving means I need to eat something now. It's urgent. And it doesn't matter what I eat because my life is at risk. Like if you're actually experiencing starvation, your life is at risk. Well, it's not true. You're not experiencing starvation. And so let's shift, let's shift that language mm-hmm. and say, like, I'm hungry. And so um, I have a guide called um, Crush Your Cravings. And um, one of the things I explain in there is a method called FAST. So how to, how to crush your cravings fast. There's four things in there. And if, if your listeners want a copy, they can always, we can mention that afterwards. But um, for F is for feel. So again, it's like, what's going on right now? What am I feeling? Where am I feeling in my body? So what, you know, um, oh, okay, I feel something kind of in the pit of my stomach, like, or I feel a tightness in my chest or, so it's really, it's identifying what's the, where am I feeling my body, this compulsion? A is for acknowledge and accept. So um, to have uncomfortable urges is a part of the human experience. There's not something wrong with you if you experience that. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a four month old son right now. And let's say I'm pushing him in the shopping cart through Costco. And Wait, wait, you, know, you have a four month old? I do. Yes. You look so rested. <laughs> um, how, ma- how many nannies do you have? I, I have um, zero, but I think I'm actually pretty good at, well, you can sort of see, I, ha- I do have the wrinkles under my eyes though. So um, <laughs> they're, they're there um, if you, if you look close enough. Um, but let's say I'm pushing them through Costco and, you know, Costco has these huge size, like versions of all these foods. Mm-hmm. So I see this giant bag of potato chips and my brain goes, man, I'd love to eat that entire bag. Like it still happens. Uh, it's not like I'm some virtuous monk who never experiences this because I lost weight. I'm like, no, 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 no. My brain still says things like that. Mm-hmm. But then I look at my son and I go, so I'm an older dad. I'm 39. So he's going to be a year old when I'm 40. And I go, okay, I want to be able to play with my kid. I want to be able to get down on the floor and wrestle with him. I want to be able to run after him. So it's like, do I want the chimps or do I want a better life for my son? And guess what wins? My son. So uh, the... Um, that's a little bit of a sidebar to say, if we're going to be successful, we do need to have an emotionally compelling reason why we want this ultimately. So, and we can come back to that, but just to bring it back to fast. So feel, acknowledge, accept. Um, and that's just saying, hey, um, it's okay to have these feelings. You're there, I didn't choose you, and you're there. Um, S is speak. And it's really just about trying to put words to it, whether you write it down or you try and speak out loud. This is what I'm experiencing. And if you can find somebody else to share it with, cool, um, without judgment. Uh, and T is time. So we just recognize that um, any sort of intense emotional urge has a lifespan. And typically, in, in most cases, it's going to disappear in less than 10 minutes. So if we can create 10 minutes of space between um, the urge to, let's say, binge eat or eat junk or things like that, and the actual action that we take, at 10 minutes, you're now making a conscious decision. So um, that's one of the ways that we can navigate dealing with these urges that, that are probably going to come up as a part of being human. That, that's a great little analogy. I like each part there. The one that sticks out to me most is that 10-minute time. Um, yeah. I think I read that for, through a few different books. But if you have a, if you're working with someone and they, mm-hmm. they come to you and they say, I got this crazy craving, 
um, you said to wait 10 minutes. Do you do you give them any suggestions of what to do in those 10 minutes? Because uh, I, I know me, I would sit there and be like, okay, yeah. John says at 600 seconds, this is going to go away. And I just stare at a clock. <laughs> yeah, that's the, like the worst thing you can do. Uh, you're, you're just going to create a huge spiral and like a hyper focus on it. It's like, no, go, go distract yourself. Well, you know, this is the one time I'm like, maybe pull out your phone and distract yourself. Mm. Um, don't set a timer because I'll set a timer in that tent. No, it's like, don't set a timer. Just acknowledge the time and then go do something. Drink a glass of water, go to some, go for a walk, go hug somebody, play a game on your phone, uh, that kind of thing. Just take your mind off of whatever it is that you're craving. What we're doing is something called urge surfing. Mm-hmm. And so it's a recognition that cravings come in waves. They don't come, it's not just like a, a, a ramp up to infinity. It's like they come and go in waves. It's going to come, you're going to feel it, and it's going to pass. So, and of course, the more times you feed a craving, the more times it's going to come back because it's teaching your brain a behavior. It's teaching your brain this, when I feel this, I eat this, I get rewarded. So the more times, so answering a craving will never make a craving go away. So if you can, if you can forego a craving and mm-hmm. you do it, regularly again and again can you eliminate totally cravings or minimize these habitual cravings that you might develop i don't know if you could ever completely eliminate them but uh, the noise is a lot quieter if i could put it Mm -hmm. that way so here's kind of a cool little thing you could do um if you really want to you get two like mason jars and in one of them you put maybe i don't know 500 500 pennies who don't use pennies anymore you could put beans in there chickpeas or something like that (laughs) And every time that you have a craving that you uh, that you bypass and don't answer, you move it from one jar to the other. And what you're doing is you're keeping a record. And if you do that 500 times, I bet that craving is no longer going to be an issue. Wow. Okay. Going to get me some chickpeas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's like, again, it's a really simple, easy visual. And there's an action involved in it. Like, so you take it from one jar, from the full jar, and you put it in the empty jar. And gradually, you'll start to see them shifting. And so... It, Go ahead. Am I correct to say if someone does something like that, they're also going to trigger the reward part of their brain and release a little dopamine? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so the same thing is when they give in to yeah. you know, some junk food, their brain going to go a little dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. If they do yeah, this yeah. little drill, they can get the same psychological effects. Yeah. Now, the dopamine hit might not be quite as potent, but it might. Two chickpeas. Because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But really, it's about um, kind of acknowledging the good. So we very often want to um, focus on our struggles and try to fix the things that are broken. And and I'm like, look, we want to put some attention on those things, of course, but I really want to focus on the things that are um, the things that you're doing well and, and look at how do we expand that? How do we do more of that? Because it's a lot more encouraging to to expand the good than it is to always feel like you're broken and trying to fix like bad or wrong things about you. Mm-hmm. Okay, very cool. So the type of people you work with, is there a specific clientele? Are you like, hey, I, I'm specifically new dads, 30 to 39? Or, or, or do, you, do you work with athletes? Like who is your clientele, your average person? Um, I, well, I would say one, I could probably work with nearly everybody. It depends. If you have a specific medical condition, I'm probably not going to work with you um, mm-hmm. because I'm not a medical practitioner. Um, but uh, generally speaking, the people I see that come to me because of kind of the messaging I have and whatnot are going to be females over the age of 30. They're typically going to be moms. Um, they're typically going to be a professional. They might be like a nurse or um, a caregiver or something like that in, in sort of a demanding, fairly high stress role where food is going to, uh, they may be like a first responder or things like that. Um, 
And so it's like balancing a whole lot of life stressors all at once. Typically they'll have tried to lose weight multiple times and failed and, and even starting to wonder if it's possible for them. Um, usually they'll have more weight to lose. So anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds is what I commonly mm -hmm. see. Um, that's who I work with most commonly. Some of my favorite clients are actually over the age, like in their late fifties and early sixties. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I have, I have one client, um, her name is Rhonda and she, I often use her as an example because she's such an inspiration to me. And she came to me at 59 and was, uh, about 50 pounds overweight. And she was super skeptical because she's 59 old school. And who's this, who's this guy online, you know, and how is he going to help me lose weight and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, but her daughter convinced she'd been following me on Instagram and had convinced her to, Hey, you should like, you know, just touch out, uh, touch base with this guy, reach out to him. And, uh, so anyway, she started working with me and, uh, over nine months we lost 50 pounds, which was incredible. So she went from being like in pain, walking across the room and just saying to people like, I'm getting old, you know, and just feeling like I'm on this downhill slide. She'd been trying to lose weight for more than 20 years and, and, uh, not succeeding. And in nine mm -hmm. months, uh, she lost 50 pounds in uh, my program is called lifestyle 180. It's a 180 day program, but she continued on a little bit after that. And actually she's still with me to this day. Um, we've probably been working together for almost two years. So the cool thing is she lost 50 pounds and now she's kept it off for almost, uh, almost two years. That's amazing. That's such an inspirational story. And, uh, I think that people, you know, who are listening in here, they don't realize the impact they have with their fitness professionals. Whether yeah. you're an online nutrition coach, whether you're a personal trainer, I always get inspired by by my people a lot Absolutely. more, a lot more <laughs> than my, myself. So I'm, it's nice to yeah. hear that I'm not the only one. Yeah. Do you think you could talk a little bit on the difference between short-term and long-term? You've mentioned you've kept your 100 pounds off for a duration. You just talked about this woman kept 50 pounds off for two years. What's yeah. the difference maker? How, how does that happen long-term versus short-term? Yeah, so short-term, you could probably diet your way down. So you could restrict for a period of time. You could probably train with a quite a high degree of intensity. And intensity is relative to the individual, but um, and, and lose weight relatively quickly. But there's a very good chance you're going to create a rebound effect because ultimately it's not that that way of living is not sustainable for most people. Mm -hmm. And so it, it goes back to if you want to create a long-term weight loss, there's there's two phases. One is obviously losing the weight and the second is keeping it off. And you go, how are you going to do that? And that is um, you're going to create a way of living that you can keep doing. So Lifestyle 180, for example, is really about crafting a lifestyle. It's exactly what we're going to do. So we're going to look at your habits, your behaviors, your beliefs, um, the the cravings that you have, the things we're going to look at your, your whole environment, whether it's we're going to look at like the stresses you have in your life. Um, we're going to look at what, you, not just what you eat, but how you eat, why you eat, when you eat, who you eat with. So getting a much more complete picture of what's going on, because the thing is weight loss happens in the real world. There's sometimes this idea that, you know, if I go to lose the weight, like somehow the world, the universe is going to conspire to make my life easier. <laughs> and it's like, no, mm -hmm. you're going to lose the weight in real life. Um, Rhonda, for example, my, my client lost 50 pounds. You know, she cares for her mother with advancing dementia. You know, she's got a husband who has limited mobility and, and a heart condition. Um, and, and she works um, also as a loan manager at a bank. <laughs> so she's got a full-time job plus two people that are, that are fairly caring, uh, requiring her attention in a fairly demanding fashion. And so, because I often hear from people like, um, you know, I don't have time. And like, if anyone didn't have time, it would be like someone like Rhonda. And, and she also didn't have time on her side because she started at 59. Mm -hmm. You know, she, but... It's like she got her life back. You know, she can now like walk five miles, swim 30 lengths. Um, like it's just, she's a different person and she's not in pain like everywhere she walks. And so to, to create long-term, it's like 
Uh, our brains are like habit-forming computers. There's more to it than that, obviously. But so if we can bring our bad habits to our conscious awareness, and then we can correct them and replace them with upgraded habits, um, that's going to ultimately because we're we're gonna we're gonna live. Um, well, let, let me put it this way: we kind of know what the lifestyle of someone who is a successful long-term weight manager, we kind of know what that looks like. We know that there's going to be an element of activity. We know that there's going to be an element of like, let's say eating nutrient dense foods, um, not eating too much junk food, getting quality sleep, having, um, having a way of managing your stress. So we know the elements of that. So we can kind of reverse engineer that and then create. And, and so it's about building things cumulatively. So instead of dumping a rule book in your lap, here's 25 things you have to follow starting today. That's a guaranteed recipe for failure. It's like, let's put this building block in place. And now let's build this piece on top of it and so on. And so I call it like a nutrition progression approach rather than here's a whole bunch of rules you have to follow starting on day one. Do you always start with one rule and say like, if you got 10 people in front of you, we're all starting with this? Or is it, you know, client specific, person specific? Um, it can be a bit of both, actually. But generally speaking, I want to, I want to know like what someone's. Uh, the first thing I'm gonna do is I want to know what your current eating pattern looks like. Mm-hmm. I want to, and that's that's the very first thing is like I want to see. I don't want you to change a thing right now for a few days. I just want to see what it looks like. That's what's going to give you some clues around um, what as we want to work on. But the the like, and then. There's kind of five key pillars, I would say, like there's a metabolic optimization. So we want to be able to optimize our, our metabolism. Um, and it, it's not something like you're going to turbocharge it or, you know, we're not, we're not sitting here like, um, you know, dropping ephedrine or something like that. But then because that opt- would turbocharge it. <laughs> yeah, it, it would also jack, jack up your nervous system to a, a very bad degree. And, and ephedrine is something that I used back in, in the past in my attempts to lose weight. I, I really, you know, it, it can be done safely. I don't want to go down that sidetrack. Um, but but generally speaking, it's not a great idea. Um, put it that way. Not it's for not, long term. No, it's not healthy for your nervous system long term. So, Nobody starts the day with a coffee and a fender every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did when I was I was long haul trucking um, <laughs> for the oil patch. Yeah, don't do that. Um, so then we want to optimize your digestion because it doesn't. You could eat the best food in the world, but you know, often the healthiest food can be some of the more difficult things to digest. Like junk food is easy to digest. A can mm-hmm. of pop is like there's no effort required, but vegetables and protein require more effort. So now we need to optimize your digestion, and then we can start diving into optimizing like the nutrient density of your diet, and then ultimately, um, then we'll we'll deep dive into the emotional relationship with food. All along the way, we're going to work on these, but we're just going to turn the spotlight to, you know, how do we optimize your metabolism? And so I will give somebody a practice and say, okay, we're going to work on this for two weeks. It's not just to repeat it by rote, but what it is, is to figure out, does this work for me? How do I customize it to make it work for me? Because like I said, we know the fundamental behaviors of the successful long-term weight managers, the people who've lost 30 pounds or more and kept it off for more than 12 months. We know what those behaviors are. So now we're going to figure out how to create a variation of that behavior that fits into your lifestyle and works for you. Mm-hmm. Let, let's rewind back here there, chemist. You mentioned at <laughs> one point, and, and, and I know if I'm thinking this, someone else is. You said junk food is easy to digest. Vegetables is not easy to digest. Could you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So um, junk food is typically like a simple carbohydrate. A lot of the di- like the mechanical digestion has already taken place. Um, a lot of the 
Um, like the fiber has been stripped away. Fiber is one of the things that can slow the digestive process. Whereas something like a, um, go back to broccoli has like tough fibrous material and cellulose and there are things mm -hmm. that are indigestible. Um, and it also, we need to mechanically digest it by like chewing it. Um, that's the first part of it. And then and it goes in your stomach and your stomach will churn. It will, it's like a muscular bag that will, um, yeah, churn things around. Protein um, needs to spend quite a bit of time in your stomach um, bathing in hydrochloric acid. That's the acid that our stomach produces that can give people reflux. But that, that acid mm -hmm. is necessary to denature the protein. So what it does is protein, there's, well, it's one step back, three macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, protein. Carbs and fats are linear molecular chains. Protein is a three-dimensional structure. That's really cool. So we need acid to go in there and break up some of those chemical bonds to, to turn a three-dimensional structure into a longer chain. And then we're going to chop, <clears throat> pardon me, then we're going to chop it into peptides, which is like amino acid chains. And then we're going to chop it down into individual amino acids, which is like your Lego building blocks. So that process takes time and it takes place in the stomach primarily. So if you eat protein with a meal, the rest of your meal is likely going to be retained in your stomach for longer. So you're going to feel full for longer. You're going to feel satisfied for longer before it's going to start to pass into the small intestine. Same thing goes for the fiber content of vegetables. They're going to, that plus the water is going to occupy volume in your stomach and keep you feeling full for longer. And mm -hmm. it just, it just takes longer to break down these complex molecules, whereas sugar, well, that's the fundamental sort of carbohydrate unit that we use for fuel in the form of say glucose or fructose. Hmm. That's very well done. You did talk earlier about the brain uses about 25% of its calories is going to be utilized through the brain. Yeah. Now, is that mostly going to be glycogen broken down from carbohydrates? Primarily. So there's folks out there in the keto camp that will say the brain prefers ketones um, preferentially. I'm like, that's not true. Because if you give your brain um, the option of ketones or glucose, your brain's going to take glucose every time. Ketones mm -hmm. are useful by all means. But you give the brain the choice between the two, it's going to take glucose because glucose is easier to access. It is easier to metabolize. And this is like a survival thing. So I'm sure some people out there, hardcore keto scientists will argue with me on this and that's okay. You can hold your position. I have nothing really against keto, um, but your brain, I think, will preferentially choose glucose if you give it. I can speak, um, I'm university, the Atkins diet came out. Remember that one? I do, yeah. The Atkins diet, and it was just, you know, the high protein, high fat, the high fat, low protein, no carb. And it was yeah. made very popular by Subway and Jared, so, and Dr. Yeah. Atkins. So I remember I stumbled upon it, and I was going through my, my undergrad in Kines, myself and my roommate, we were into fitness. Yeah. And we're both like, hey, let's try this Atkins thing, just see what happens. So we got to understand, <laughs> super active, like 22-year-old guy that would like regularly socialize with people. Food was just, you know, the, the IC diet. I see it, I eat it kind of thing. And then all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. went, went from that lifestyle to we're just going to go on no carb. And I remember, you know, three, four days later, we're just at each other's throat over yeah. something stupid like the dishes. We were just <laughs> arguing at each other. We hated each other's guts. And we were so irritable. Yeah. I remember I, I, I couldn't study, I couldn't read, I couldn't yeah. do anything. I'm like, what is going on? And I remember telling another friend that I was doing this Atkins thing. They're like, you know your brain needs carbohydrates. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And then we, yeah. we just quit. Like, I don't even think yeah. we hit a full four days. It was about three and a half. We're just like, we're out, we're out. Yeah. We just had to put carbohydrates in and we were able to not strangle each other. Yeah, and the thing to think about is like, when we're burning ketones for fuel, that's a starvation response. Um, so body fat biologically is just stored energy. 
you know, and so I say, like, I'm pretty famine resilient because I have I still I still carry around some body fat, right? You'll make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless they choose me because I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not like a skinny weed. So like, well, we're, we're going to eat that guy next. But um, yeah, it makes you famine resilient. So if you're burning ketones, you're essentially in like a starvation response or what would appear because it takes three to four days to get into ketosis properly, mm-hmm. right? Without without any carbohydrates um, because your body can make um, glucose from, uh, well, it's, uh, De novo, gluconeo, de novo gluconeogenesis. There we go. Yes. I was like, um, which is the making of new glucose um, from amino acids. And so, um, yeah, if you have ketones fueling your brain, and because people say like after three or four days, the brain fog clears and, and that's what they'd say to you. Oh, you just didn't stick it out for long enough. I'm like, yeah, you know what happens when you're, when you're starving is there's a period of time where your body loses interest in food and your, your other senses become heightened and focused because your, your job is to hunt for food. So you become more visually acute. Your hearing becomes more sensitive. Your, your sense of touch becomes more sensitive and so on. This is a response to your body being like, we got to find food. Mm-hmm. That, that's what's actually taking place. I did um I, I did a funny thing before I was doing a nose to tail nutrition plan and uh, I did that thing there for about a hundred days, and you're right because the senses of were heightened dramatically. I remember the first time I added honey, like real honey. So oh, going going yeah. from like no no fruits no vegetables for a long duration and then a spoonful of honey. Yeah. <laughs> I just oh, remember like, wow. I didn't even know what. It's like, how did did you guys know honey tasted like this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was wild. Well, and the thing is, is, is if you go like a period of time without eating, um, like eating something, your taste buds will resensitize. And that's kind of useful just in terms of like someone that feels like they're addicted to junk food. I'm like the first two weeks are going to suck if you cut out junk food for a period of time because you're, you're hypersensitized. Like, mm-hmm. or, sorry, you've been desensitized because of these hyper powerful flavorings, like artificial flavors and sweeteners. I don't think they're, they're like carcinogens, but they do, um, they do recalibrate our brain's sense of sweetness and flavor. So it makes an ordinary strawberry, for example, taste like cardboard. Well, you move away from the artificial flavors and sweeteners for two weeks, your palate will resensitize. And like in your experience, you weren't eating any sugar or anything like that. All of a sudden, sugar would have tasted phenomenally flavorful because your your, your taste buds hadn't experienced that for a period of time. Mm-hmm. It, it's the same thing. You know this with the brain and stimulation from activities with technology versus, you know, no technology. Yeah. So, so I, I can speak as a, as a dad of two boys. They're a little older than yours. Yeah. But when they get too much exposure to screen time, everything else is boring. Yeah. But if you if you have them off those screens for multiple days in a row, all of a sudden, hey, dad, look, grass is growing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's you know, and I think about that time before, though, I think about that, like, I don't want him to see me on, I'm an online business, so I'm going to be on a screen for a good chunk of the day, but I don't want him to see that all the time. I don't want him to, me to be with him on my phone. So there's a really cool book out there called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really instrumental in helping me shape my digital environment, help me manage because I run an online business. There's a possibility of like always being online and always trying to be connected and so on, but it's not healthy for myself or for my clients really. So shaping my digital environment and recognizing the impact it has in the brain, like he really explains the attention economy and it's quite startling when you realize what's happening. It is. In my household, we created these tech-free zones. There's areas right. where there is no technology and, um, being on technology a lot myself i caught myself being on it too much when my son asked me he said daddy can you put your phone down wow so he said those words to me and i was like hey there's there's a problem here so there was um i can't remember which book it was there's a book i read and they they talked about creating these um trigger words 
that'll yeah. make you snap out of this stuff. So I realized right away, and I said, I said, uh, his name's Michael. I said, Michael, anytime that you see Daddy on his phone in the no tech zone, which was dinner table and stuff, yeah. I said, I want you to say one word. He said, what word? I said, whatever word you want to say that you think will get my attention. And it's funny, because guess what word he chose? He goes, chocolate. Because <laughs> in my house, I'm the chocolate monster. Right, That's yeah. my identity. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I should yeah. change it. But so anytime that I would be on my phone, and he would just have to say the word chocolate, and right away I would be like, not supposed to do this. And you know what? Like, it worked. It didn't take long. Yeah. I only had to hear it a couple times. And as a parent, you just you feel like... Okay, uh, uh, well, I got caught. I'm bad, but then yeah, you stop like, doing it. But that, I love that. I'm, I'm going to steal that no tech zones idea. That's amazing. And um, yeah, to get called out by your kid, it's like I'm supposed to be the responsible one setting an example here. Um, but that's you know, and I actually had that one of my clients do that with with their kids. I was like, have them uh, ask you about drinking water because she was she was really struggling with hydration, and I was like, have them ask you, hey mom, why do you have your water bottle? <laughs> you know she has four kids i'm like get them mm-hmm. on board because you're a better person when you're hydrated you know mm-hmm. so same sort of idea it's like shape your environment to support your health 100 percent um one thing we do at our house like with our kids is our kids eat what we eat they don't they don't get specialized foods yeah you yeah. got a baby that's a bit different but you know like sure. a five and a seven year old so the reality is when everyone sits down for dinner and there's carbs fats protein Everyone gets carbs, fats, protein, yeah. nothing special. Have you ever dealt with parents before who make different meals for their kids and find that difficult for them to sit there and eat what they should eat versus what they want to eat? Because everyone likes hot dogs. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Nobody on the planet can honestly look me in the eye and say a hot dog does not taste good. Yeah. P- people can say it's not food, and I'll agree, yeah. but you cannot say it doesn't taste good. Yeah, it's a well-engineered food product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you know it's really unhelpful because I think about it, uh, what you're setting your your kids up for their their future health. I go, okay, well, if this is a pattern you're establishing in their formative years, do you think when they get older they're going to start wanting to eat vegetables? No. And so, what's really important, I think, with with kids, and it obviously it depends on what age they are, um, but it's it's getting them involved in whatever capacity is appropriate for their age with the, the food preparation process because kids are more open to trying things if they have if they get to touch it or feel it or and they, they get a sense of choice mm-hmm. and so it can be as simple as you know hey would you like cucumber or carrot now it's not you have to eat your cucumber because every human being even when they're little human beings they have a strong sense of autonomy and so when it feel when they feel powerless and like the power of choice is taken away from them they're mm-hmm. going to re- rebel against it but you give them two choices and say, hey, you get two choices here, this one or this one. You know, now they're taking, okay, I want the carrot. Awesome, I'm going to give you the carrot and now you have to eat the carrot because you chose it. And so it's, it sounds like a really, and it should be really simple, especially dealing with kids. But get them, whatever's appropriate, depending on their age, get them involved with the food preparation process. Um, and then What about, sorry, I'm just thinking of things in my own head here. Hmm. What about having your kids even help with making dinner? No, oh, absolutely. But, yeah. And, that, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm meaning is like um, if, if they're old enough and it's appropriate to have them like chop vegetables, but maybe that's not quite appropriate. But maybe you can give them a lettuce leaf and say, hey, tear this up, mm. you know. Love and that. so yeah, that'd be super fun, like te- tearing lettuce, right? Because lettuce is actually ch- chopping lettuce will turn it brown with a knife. So it's actually tearing lettuce is more effective for creating a salad, for example. That's so, good to know. 
yeah, so get their hands on it, you know, anytime it doesn't have to be like, you know, presented in a pretty fashion, you know, um, get, get them into it, uh, mm-hmm. mashing, what, mashing potatoes or something, you know. What about taking groceries in from the house? Before kids, I was the one trip man, right? Yeah. yeah now yeah. I, ro- I roll up in the driveway, they come running out and they try to, how many bags can they get? Everyone goes right for the, for the toilet paper, obviously, but. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, even like a grocery store can be a tricky place for parents um, because grocery stores are, are designed to, you know, especially like at the checkout aisle when it's like, I want a chocolate bar. Like, you don't have a chocolate bar. I want a chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, tantrum. Okay, I'm going to give you a chocolate bar to shut you up because we're out in public or something like that. Um, but I mean, if you just establish clear boundaries and, and you're clear on your nose with kids, so they, they know that okay, when, when mom or dad says no, like that means no. Um, get into the grocery store and be like showing them the colors of like the fruits and vegetables because children are drawn to colors. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think of like you know yellow, orange, red, and green peppers, for example. Those are like really, really colorful and flavorful vegetables. So get them, you know. Or hey, would you like to pick out a cucumber? Do you want to pick out this? So you're getting them to choose at the group. Okay, I want this tomato or I want this cucumber. I want, so again, just getting them involved. So now they feel like they're a part of the process instead of just, you know, at the dinner table, mom and dad just put this in front of me and force me to eat it. Mm-hmm. Like a very, very different experience. I love that. Giving kids autonomy and being part of the decisions when it comes to their nutrition. Yeah. And it, it, look, I mean, look, you're a parent for a reason and it is important, like, you know, children aren't emotionally developed enough to really like obviously make the best choice of their life. Like you don't hand a, a five-year-old the keys to a car and go, Hey, you should try this out. We recognize that they're not in a, you know, and so obviously you still need to be a parent, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but wherever possible, and so where age appropriate, you get them involved in the process and they're much more likely to be receptive to it. Mm-hmm. There's still some things, the kids are still going to be picky eaters, but like I, my intention is it might change, but like my intention is my kid is not going to experience like sugar and chocolate and junk food. Like I hope um, for quite some time, he's going to experience like fruits and vegetables and uh, protein and things like that. So that's what his palate gets, gets like shaped uh, towards. And so I love that idea that your kids eat like what you eat. There's no chicken nuggets and hot dogs for you while we eat broccoli and rice and salmon or something. Oh man, I eat chicken hearts. I eat yeah. organ meats. <laughs> I gave the uh, old chicken heart to a five-year-old. You want to yeah. see? You want to see a face turn? You yeah. Do it though. Yeah. Um, you talked a lot in the be- you talked in the beginning about the frontal lobe development and how that's a, a very large component of our decision-making process and how we yeah. we falter to what feels good versus not. Am I right to say that children's frontal lobe that's one of the last things to develop? It, like I think it's in it our is, early twenties yeah. is when it finally develops fully, right? It is, and it develops later in men than women. Um, and in fact, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we, you know, it's, it's so funny because we can pick on men and be like, "Well, men behave like such like juveniles," and they're you know, I'm like, "Yeah," because their brain is still juvenile. It's not my fault. I mean, it's not <laughs> our fault. It's not <laughs> yeah. our fault. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like bad behavior is bad behavior, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to understand, like again, why that behavior is occurring, it's because that part of the brain takes the longest to develop because it's kind of the most complex. Whereas the primal emotional, it's like I scream, I get comfort. You know, like my little four-month-old, it's like ice cream, mommy or daddy picks me up, and I get comfort. And mm-hmm. we're not, you know, I mean, he's four months old. <laughs> like, that's that's all he knows right now. Mm-hmm. But that's the part of the brain that's developing right away. But the higher level thinking, cognitive functioning, weighing long-term consequences really doesn't develop until uh, late teens to mid to late 20s even, depending on the individual, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really, really important to to know that and realize, okay, I want to give them a degree of autonomy, but it's controlled autonomy. Love that. 
Jonathan, if someone is on the uh, listing right now and they've struggled with weight loss over the years, they've tried everything and nothing seems to work, um, is there one tip, one piece of advice, one phrase that you would like to leave with them before they go over and check out your website and see how you work with coaching? <laughs> if there was one thing, what would you say? Awareness is the first step to change. You're not like, so you're not broken. Um, but there's just certain behaviors that are happening automatically and they're happening habitually and they're happening because of beliefs you hold and so on. But I will say it's extremely difficult to change by yourself. The, 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 this whole like self-made person is a myth. Um, so when somebody works with me, I'm not encumbered by their emotional past. And that allows me to, to I don't see a sum of someone's past failures. I just look at them and see their potential. And, and that's exactly what it is. So awareness is that first step to change is what I would say. So just start making note of your behaviors and your unhealthy behaviors, start developing self-awareness and change can change can happen. It's not easy, but it will happen. Phenomenal stuff. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what is a, the easiest way to go about that? Um, well, hey, you can actually shoot me a friend request on Facebook. So um, my, my handle is Canadian Nomad, but there's only one N in there. Um, we'll, we'll put all the proper spelling in the show notes we, here. We will. Yeah. yeah. Um, website is freedomnutritioncoach.com. Um, and if anyone would like the copy of that crush your cravings guide, we'll put a link in there. It's no FN diets dot rocks forward slash crush dash your dash cravings. All I heard is no FN diets. <laughs> oh yeah. So freedom nutrition coaching, the, the logo is FN and that kind of started as a joke. No FN diets. Um, and so that, that kind of became the hashtag, no effing diets. And it's just kind of a cheeky way of saying we reject the idea that a diet will create permanent change. No, it won't. So mm-hmm. we're, we're now, so we're about creating permanent lifestyle change. I love this. The, the psychology of coaching people is, is where we need to be. Not everyone's there yet in the fitness and health industry, but it's definitely yeah. where it needs to be. And I'm glad that there's people like you out there doing a phenomenal work. Yeah, thanks, man. It's been it's been great to chat with you, and I'm sure we could chat for a few hours more yet. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I I, I want to. I can just talk dad stuff as well. That's, that's kind <laughs> no of my kidding. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the Project Fitness Podcast. Um, uh, again, we thank you for being on here. All of the information is going to be underneath, and you have a phenomenal day, my friend. Never stop you learning well. because so life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast, and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.